0: Hello and welcome to Who Books That with Harrison Greenbaum. I'm your host, Harrison Greenbaum, and I missed you guys. Uh, This was the longest hiatus I've taken since the beginning of the pandemic. Three weeks. um, But we have some incredible, incredible guests. Uh, Tonight is certainly uh, not an exception um, thank you so much, as always, for supporting the show. Um, every episode of the show is available uh, in podcast form wherever you get your podcast, whether that's Apple Music or Google Play. It's even available on Amazon, so you could ask your Alexa um, for this podcast. You can check it out on Apple Music. Just go to whobooksthat.com for more info. It is now in the top 100 performing arts podcasts in eight countries around the world, and that is thanks to you guys supporting us. Um, and for leaving those great reviews. Uh, Leaving five-star reviews really, really helps uh, increase the visibility of the podcast. So thank you so much for doing that. If you haven't already, uh, go for it. Uh, We really, really appreciate it. And this show, of course, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. If you're on the East Coast, 4 p.m. If you're on the West Coast, Uh, and you can watch it whenever you want, uh, once it's aired, Um, it is live. So when you watch live, you get to participate. So that's pretty exciting. And of course, uh, this show is presented by the International Brotherhood of magicians. If you are not a member yet, uh, go to magician.org slash join dash the dash IBM slash join. If you are a member, uh, now's a great time to renew your membership. Uh, the linking ring is still coming out every month. So make sure you uh, support this incredible organization. It's been providing content throughout the pandemic. Uh, it's the jam. IBM jam live is still going strong every Tuesday. Make sure you check that out. And if you'd like to follow me, it's at Harrison comedy at Twitter and Instagram. Uh, Let's kick this thing off. I am so, so excited uh, for our guest for the evening. Uh, George Tennant, the acting director of the CIA, had this to say about our guest. He said he's a man of magical warmth, wit, wisdom, and decency. He was the deputy director for intelligence from 1997 to 2000. He created the senior analytics service. Uh, President Clinton designated McLaughlin as the acting deputy director of central intelligence. On June 28th, 2000, he was the acting director uh, in 2004. He is currently a senior fellow and distinguished practicer in residence at the Philip Merrill Center for Strategic Studies at John Hopkins University, Paul H. Nietzsche School of Advanced International Studies. That is a long one, SAIS in Washington, DC. He is also a fantastic magician, uh, performs all over the country and is the author of Creating Business Magic, a fantastic book. Uh, He co-authored with David Morey and Eugene Berger. Uh, Guys, I am so excited to introduce you to our guest for this evening. Make some noise. Get excited from your apartment and or home. It's John McLaughlin, everybody. (laughs) Hello, John.
1: Hello, Harrison. Hello, everyone in the IBM. Great to uh, be with all of you.
0: Actually, right before we went live, I got a text from uh, Alexander, who just served as the president of the IBM, uh, reminding me of how long you have been in uh, the IBM and such a uh, an active and longtime member. So that's awesome.
1: Yeah, I'm an Order of Merlin guy.
0: Actually, that's funny. You should say that you were in the Order of Merlin. Uh, that yeah. came after or before uh, that was your nickname uh, in the CIA?
1: Well, uh, that nickname, I think, predated my uh, IBM membership, but... <laughs> but it it fits. It fits. And then Merlin was leaked at one point. Uh, In other words, it it was no longer a secret or that's why you're talking about it now. (laughs) In the later days, we changed it to Blackstone.
0: Oh, that's fantastic. And that that one works. And that's a perfect segue into your, uh, your early uh, beginnings as a magician. Uh, You saw him early on in your life. And I think that really solidified your, your love of magic.
1: Oh, I I was so blessed really. Uh, You know, I, encountered the world of magic in 1953, uh, as many people did when they went to see that old movie about what was called Houdini. It was uh, Janet uh, Lee and Tony Curtis. And we all know it was historically inaccurate, but I think. <laughs> if you look at it today, it's still a very exciting, colorful movie of that era. I ran right to the library, got the biography of Houdini and discovered the historical inaccuracies. This was the authorized biography in 1927 by Harold Kellogg. And then I got my first magic book after that, uh, Fun with Magic by Joseph Leeming. Started uh, building cardboard props in my attic, that kind of thing. We've all done this. (laughs) But uh, at the age of, I think, 14, Harry Blackstone Sr. came through Pittsburgh at the Nixon Theater. And my mother and uh, her friend took me. And we sat in the balcony. And it's as vivid as yesterday to me. Uh, it was for a fourteen-year-old, just absolutely transporting in in the way that those old shows could be. And Harry Blackstone Jr. did very much the same show, <clears throat> very different style. But uh, Blackstone Sr. was uh, my, you know, model for many years.
0: And was was there any effect in particular? I know the floating light bulb for a lot of people was a was literally a light bulb for them because that that yes. thing. I I never got to see it live, obviously, from Blackstone Senior, but uh, the the idea of a light bulb floating over your head in the middle of the audience just sounds incredibly magical.
1: Yeah, I mean, even as a 14-year-old, but then as an, uh, even today, if I see uh, there's still one or two uh, YouTubes of Blackstone Junior doing it, I still get goosebumps. Combination of the music, uh, almost everyone says this who's ever seen it, that it's, in what Even if you know how it's done, it's still the greatest magic trick you've ever seen. Although I think what I remember most about the uh, Blackstone Senior show was just the spectacle of it. Live orchestra. And what I remember most is Blackstone Senior in front of the curtain, while the things were being changed, doing little tricks. Um, Something as simple as the Afghan bands or... Uh, if you remember the old silk wonder box, just little little time killers that he would do, but so with such charm um, in front of the curtain is in a spotlight is kind of what I remember most vividly.
0: And you were in McKeesport, uh, Pennsylvania, not too far from Pittsburgh. And I believe you also uh what what was there a magic store nearby that you that you get to go and and I feel oh, like every kid has that one store yeah, that
1: you is do your research, Harrison. That's interesting. <laughs> yes, it was Regal's House of Enchantment. Regal is Swoger spelled backwards. There it is. Uh, James Swoger, Jim Swoger, who was the classic old-time magic dealer. Many of you have experienced this. You know, I'd go there with my three dollars and Jim would spend, then I was 14, 12, 13, 14. He would spend a good part of an afternoon with me. And I had $3. And nine times out of 10, he would tell me, don't buy that, don't buy that. That won't work for you. Uh, Here, buy Tarbell. And volume by volume, he sold me the entire Tarbell course. He always said, you know, read before you buy. And uh, that was the best. I still do tricks today in my shows out of Tarbell One. (laughs) In fact, someone should do a lecture called the Tarbell, you never knew. <laughs> there, there's right.
0: Stuff. There's a lot of gems in there. Every in time it. I pick it up, there's always something where I'm like, this would work.
1: This would work. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I learned uh, the billiard ball trick from there and all sorts of stuff. But, uh, yeah, that was Jim Swoger. And he was a, a wonderful guy in a, an old clapboard house in Wilkinsburg, Pennsylvania. I, I don't know. And he manufactured for um, magic dealers around the world because he had this large garage workshop in the back. And next door in my little magic room, I still have some of the apparatus that he made. It's very durable, very beautiful. Uh, And much of the stuff you bought back in the 60s actually came from uh, Swoger's uh, garage.
0: Right. He was the plastic king, I think was his title.
1: He did a lot of woodwork too.
2: Yeah.
0: That's amazing. And uh, from that point, you're you're doing magic. At that point, do you think I'm going to be a professional magician? Was that a thought that did the young John think, I'm, I'm going to be Blackstone. That's my next thing.
1: Well, everyone thinks that. And, <laughs> uh, you know, it's, I think everyone as, at that age believes that. Uh, but I don't think I ever really believed it. Uh, what I wanted to do was perform for people. And I found opportunities to do that. Did it in college. Did it on the street corner in Italy when I was going to school there to, for a few bucks. I was a graduate student in uh, Italy at one point. And I have to say, I fell away from it a bit, not in interest but in practice uh, in my uh, post my first years working full time professionally, and I was drafted in in the army for four years as well. so that was that was a period of time when I maintained my interest but uh other than you know working on a card trick or so now and then, or i i didn't pr- I didn't pursue it with the kind of passion I have in recent years. So it was probably around 1985 that I got, or 1980, that I got truly back into it. And interestingly, it was Harry Blackstone Jr. When I took my kids to see him, I thought, you know, I remember how much I loved this. It was around 1979, 1980, when he was touring with his big Broadway show. He came to Washington near where we lived. And uh, I, I remember exactly that thought, you know, I really love this. I can do some of this. I even had The Vanishing Birdcage. <laughs> I used to do The Vanishing Birdcage when I was 14 or so of the Abbott's model. Most of you will know it.
0: That, that is my least favorite thing about the Prestige movie is that, well, there's two things. Everybody thinks that those are real terms. They go, oh, that was, was that the Prestige? And the second thing is that anytime somebody sees The Vanishing Birdcage, they now assume the bird is dead.
1: Well, you know. Yeah, uh, get your rubber bird from Norm Nielsen.
0: Right, exactly. I'm um, always yeah, like, do you really think there's just thousands of magicians around the globe murdering birds every night? That's right. Well, I that's I think,
1: it, wasn't it Carl Hartz, the uh, one of the old-time magicians who had to prove in court that he wasn't killing a bird with the trick? Right. It Might have been someone else, but it was someone in that era who had to prove that uh, in a well, court of law. We
0: we talked about you. You, you served uh, in Vietnam. Mm-hmm. You got a, a bronze star. Um, you were a lieutenant there, um, and there were people who went to Vietnam who came back very disillusioned about the whole thing. Uh, you came back and, and essentially joined the CIA. What, what happened there or what uh, about either th- that experience or where you're at that that convinced you that that was the right path?
2: Well,
1: you know, uh, I teach graduate students now, as you know, and sometimes they will ask me, um, uh, how did you get into the CIA? And, and they expect some rational answer. And I say, no, no, Um, let me quote Lenin. (laughs) And right away they look at me, uh, what, where are you going with this? And then I say, John Lennon. Right. (laughs) uh, Who once said, life is what happens while you're making plans. And that's kind of how it happened for me. I was, never had a thought about the CAA. The army drafted me. I went to Vietnam. I became an officer. I was doing, commissioned in infantry, but then they transferred me into intelligence, and I had an exposure to it for the first time. Came back, spent a couple of years in civilian life, and uh, got got kind of bored and remembered, you know, I didn't like the Vietnam War, but I liked the intelligence part of it, and so I just applied to the CA. There's nothing, you can still do that. You can go online. There's a website. There wasn't a website then. You had to go to the the federal building in Philadelphia and find a recruiter. And they had them, believe it or not.
0: And also, I'm not I'm not going to put the CIA website on the show, only because if you can't find the CIA website, you probably should not join the CIA. <laughs> that's well, the first step. That's
1: basically <laughs> how people join is they go to the website and they download the application and you send your resume and they call you and say, we're interested or we're not. And uh, that's, so I did the 1970s version of that. And I had the profile in those days that worked very well a graduate degree, uh, army officer, um, (laughs) magician. Um, Yeah. It's that it's, it's, it's it's, life is what happens while you're making plans.
0: I heard though there was a moment where when you were, were in Vietnam getting off a helicopter where somebody might have suggested the CIA.
1: How do you learn these things?
0: You, you should be I, an intelligent. I intelligence. do my own research. I'm, uh, I'm di- I gathered my own intelligence for this interview.
1: <laughs> yeah, I've told that story. Uh, we were on a chopper going up through, if, if there are any Vietnam veterans in the audience. <clears throat> this was in third Corps tactical zone. That would be the <clears throat> 12, 13 provinces around Saigon. And the northern part of that zone butts up against the Cambodian border. And we were choppering up to a special forces camp by the Cambodian border. <clears throat> This was right at the base of a mountain called Nui Ba Dan, Black Mountain. That's the other thing the Army treated me to, was nine months training in Vietnamese. And at that mountain, um, North Vietnamese were on the mountain, and they would uh, mortar the landing strip when your helicopter came in. So you had to drop in on the helicopter, jump out, run across the landing strip, and dive for a bunker, uh, and the chopper would leave. And uh, while we're doing this, a grizzled old Sergeant Major, who was with me, turned to me and said, jokingly, he said, kid, if you like this sort of thing, they have jobs like this at CIA. And then we dove into the bunker. And it always just struck me as one of those moments in life where Providence (laughs) reaches down and touches your brain or something, because that thought popped back into my mind like three years later. And... uh, that's it.
0: No, that's amazing. Um, and then you joined the CIA. Um, you were you worked on, on Russia for quite a while. Um, this is actually a picture I found of you right after the Berlin Wall had fallen. Uh, and you actually touched upon that in your uh, in your book, um, which is fantastic creating business magic about how uh, it was almost a magic trick because you guys kind of knew it was gonna fall before I think they knew it was gonna fall.
1: Yes, uh, uh, we talk about this under the heading of um, trying to think ahead and trying to imagine the future. And at the CIA, we had analysts who were very prescient about where the two Germanies were going. You recall there was East Germany and West Germany. And we could sense all through Eastern Europe, uh, Poland, Czechoslovakia, then Czechoslovakia, East Germany, Bulgaria, and so forth, that the strictures of the Soviet period were breaking down, and particularly in East Germany, because East Germans were able to see West German television. uh, They were very literate, highly educated, and, and they were losing faith in the system and patience with the repression. And so we were pretty convinced that Germany was going to get united. We even united within the CIA administratively the pieces of our Workforce that worked on East and West and made it into something we called the German Working Group. In other words, we were anticipating this. And uh, I have to tell you, I was in Germany a month before Germany united in October of 1989, before the wall came down. Didn't unite till 1990, but the wall came down in November 1989. And um, to a person, senior German officials I spoke with said, this can't happen in my lifetime. It will not happen in my lifetime. And so what I'm contrasting for you is the, the way someone close and engaged in a problem can see it through a kind of mindset, whereas someone standing way back and looking at it clinically may see it a little
0: differently. And this is great because we're starting to get into sort of the overlap between uh, the ways magicians think and the way intelligence uh, officers and analysts think. Somebody asked the question. He said, at the height of the Cold War, the CIA paid $3,000 for renowned magician John Mulholland to write a manual on misdirection, concealment, and stagecraft. Has John read it? Has there been an updated version? Uh, I, not only did John read it, I can tell you, uh, I'm pretty sure he did because he wrote the foreword to it. Yeah. Um, but you had a great quote in your foreword to, that, uh, to, to this book. Um, uh, there's there's several quotes, um, but you you mentioned uh, let's see if I can find the exact quote. Um, the the uh, description here, uh, uh, here it is. Uh, you, you talked about the the similarities between thinking like a magician and and what that means for somebody in the say for example, uh, that magic and espionage are really kindred arts. So can you yeah. speak a little bit about what makes magic and espionage? Uh, what, what is what's the Venn diagram overlap of the two?
1: Mm. Well, first on that book, uh, to be clear, I wrote the foreword just recently, not back in the nineteen
2: fifties. it
1: was uh, <laughs> contracted for. And the second point is, uh, I did it with some reluctance because the book the book's um, role has been exaggerated. It, In the whole time I was at CIA, I don't think I was aware of the existence of this book. In other words, it was, this was in the 50s when the CIA was, this is the height of the Cold War. So people were doing very, they were trying everything. At that point, uh, people in the US government actually thought the Russians might be working on a program to read minds and they might succeed. Who knew in the 50s? Uh, lots of strange things went on at the uh, very height of the Cold War. So someone had the idea, let, let's get a magician to tell us what they know. And a lot of this book is um, kind of simple sleight of hand that, for example, dropping a pill in someone's drink. I can tell you, they don't do that at the CIA. That, it's just not something you, you know, it's just, it's in the movies. So I don't know that the book was ever actually used for operational support, but it, it is emblematic of the way people thought about the world in those days. Now, that doesn't mean that magic has not been used by the CIA. Right. <laughs> in, in other words, uh, you can go all the way back to World War II and find evidence of magicians participating in the deception campaigns prior to Normandy and so forth. It somewhat exaggerated the role of. Uh, Uh, Jasper Masculine, but nonetheless, he did have a role, particularly in camouflage. And uh, the the Venn diagram, I think, goes roughly like this. Almost everything that a magician does or the way a magician thinks is uh, very comparable to the way you have to think in the intelligence world. Um, I'll give you two examples. Uh, There are many in this book, but two examples. Uh, One of my favorite magicians, of course, is Teller. Teller is so smart and thoughtful about magic. And Teller's first law of magic is prepare more than your audience can imagine you ever would. And and Max Malini is the classic example of that. And we give some examples in the book. This is very applicable to intelligence. You're trying to recruit a secret agent. That means you've got to spot someone, develop them, build a relationship with them, ultimately recruit them um and it's not something you do lightly this is something you do only when the united states really needs something desperately that it can't get some other way there's lots of reasons why you have to be careful with this but you you need to prepare more than you can imagine anyone ever would to build that relationship um most of us as magicians do this I, i if you want i'll come back and give you an example of when i have done that uh to to use magic another way Is um, the magician's formula as we think it through in the book is the key thing is think of effect before method, think of effect before method. Imagine the objective before you start thinking about the technology. Okay, Mona. David is a businessman, and so he was bringing in insights from business. And the quote we used from Steve Jobs on that score was: "Begin with the customer's perception. Only then move to the technology." Okay. So in the magic world, I, I, I was in a group recently where we were able to hear David Copperfield talk. And I said, I asked the question, what are the things you've done where people said, told you, that's impossible. I thought it would be flying. And he said, no, actually, it was more making the Statue of Liberty disappear. People said you couldn't do that. But he began with the idea that I'm going to make the Statue of Liberty disappear, not with the question of how would you make it disappear? So at the CIA, the example from that world, the Venn diagram, would be, there are many, but I'll go back to an historical example. In the 1950s, someone said, this will seem prosaic today, but back then it was a, a counter cultural idea. What if we could take photographs from space? Well, how are you going to do that? get a conventional camera up there, photograph something on the earth and actually see it. Now, today you can do this with your phones, right? You can look on your phone and see space satellite photographs. Back then you had to get, this was in the Sputnik era when we we weren't very good at rocketry. You had to get a rocket up. You had to get the stages to separate. You had to get a conventional camera there. You had to take it around the earth. It had to snap pictures. You had to drop it in a basket. The basket had to come down through 600,000 feet of space. And then a parachute had to open at 65,000 feet. And then a slow-flying plane had to catch it in a basket. And then it had to be taken somewhere, developed in a conventional photographic lab, and then interpreted. Well, today we do it in the snap with electronic transfers and so forth. But back then, once again, it's the paradigm shift question. That is the Venn diagram here. The paradigm shift question is one that I teach my students because it's applicable to life in general. What is it that if we could do it would revolutionize what we do? If you can answer that question, you're on your way to imagining something and achieving something that thinking conventionally will hold you back from, from doing because people will tell you it's impossible. It's impossible. Another way is, um, you know, always get one ahead. Magicians are always one ahead. Uh, The most delicious moment in a trick is after you've done the load and your your work is over, right? (laughs) And all you have to do is worry about the reveal. Cups and balls. And know your outs. You know, what if you drop the load? How do you get out of it? So those those ideas, too, are applicable in business, Always get one ahead of your competitor, whether it's a negotiation or devising the next product, and get one ahead by imagining the future, not imagining what you can do, but imagining what you want to do. You know, effect before method, objective before process, dream before mechanism. And, and that's, those are principles that drive the intelligence business, and they're principles that drive conventional business, and I think principles that are also uh, important in, in magic. But again, to me, a teller's first rule is the most important one. Prepare more than your audience can ever imagine that you, a normal person, would.
0: <laughs> yeah, the method is sweat, and that's always, that's always a good one. Yeah. And I also love the idea of, of, of you know, idea before method, because my the, my lecture, which I've done all over the world, one of the main tenets of it is, the reason magic isn't art in so many instances is because they start with the technique or the trick and then figure out how to jam it into their act. And if you just start with a blank page and say, what am I going to do? What's the wizard version of this? You end up putting yourself in a completely different headspace and coming up with something that's unique and original because you're coming up with just a fun idea. Write, write the script before you come up with the method. You don't You don't need to have the technique or the method in advance. You should be figuring out what you're trying to say because that's what art is about communicating an idea so you have to start with that idea first. Exactly. And one of the things too I've noticed there's like this book, for example, it's a lot about how the magical way of thinking um, can improve, uh, for example, uh, if you're an intelligence officer, the things that are uh, the things that magicians know that they should know that will help them. But since this is an audience of a lot of magicians, are there things that you learned as an intelligence officer that has helped your magic?
1: Well, uh, that's interesting. Uh, Again, prepare more than your audience can imagine you ever would is something that I learned in the intelligence, that it was, I think, more apparent to me in the intelligence world before it was apparent to me in the magic world. And it certainly reinforced my my thinking there. Another thing is... Thinking about people and why they react the way they react. Um, What motivates a spy? And if you get into that, it's very complicated. Um, And I think that, as with all things, I tell young magicians, learn about other things, read about other things it will help you be a better magician. So in in that sense, being being, uh, an intelligence officer forced me to think about motives a lot. Well, when you're looking at an audience, again, Tommy Wonder said, imagine first how the audience thinks. It's Tommy Wonder. So um, to me... Uh, say, uh, I, I raised the question of uh, what motivates a spy. We have a, a, a an acronym for that, MICE, M-I-C-E. Uh, those are the four things you typically find, money, ideology, ego, and the uh, money, ideology, compromise, compromise, Russian word, but with a C in this case, uh, meaning basically... Um, Something that is uh, vulner- creates a vulnerability, and then ego, you know, money, uh, ideology, compromise, and ego. So that, that's not a magic audience, but it forces you to think about what's motivating people sitting here in front of me. Um, Here's here's another thing that Roberto Jobi said, and I picked this up in his book, Confidences, that is an insight about magic, but it's also an insight about intelligence. He said a magic trick happens three times. When it's done, when it's performed, when someone remembers it, and when they tell someone else about it. And I I can give you an example of that. I did a did a trick at a dinner once, and there were a couple of journalists there. It was a haunted deck. It was done with a. a, a come on, I, we can talk about method on this podcast. Okay. I
0: mean, there are non magicians watching, but so, uh, but uh, you get. It, it was a haunted deck. Yeah.
1: Okay. And um, very simple haunted deck where the, the card went in, and then I, the deck was on the table, and I waved my hands, and the card slid out. Everyone liked it. A couple of years later, this journalist wrote a book forget the name of the title of it. And he described, it was about something else, but he just described meeting me at a dinner and I did a magic trick. And the trick he described, the card rose above the table. It floated around in front of everyone's (laughs) face and it landed in front of the person who had chosen it. Now, how did that happen? (laughs) I think it's Joby's rule. So in the intelligence world, you're frequently trying to influence an audience overseas with some technique, psychological warfare, deception. Um, magicians basically influence, you, you know, I, I always say magic is primarily a head game. Yeah, you have to have the technique and, and, and methods and manipulation and so forth. But magic is happening in the heads of the audience. And again, if you're an an intelligence officer, you're constantly trying to get into someone's head and imagine, what are they thinking? The president is about to meet the president of another country or a prime minister or a king. The president wants to know, what am I going to encounter there? Where's this person coming from? And so as an intelligence officer, you have to be able to say, based on what we can determine, this is where this individual will be coming from. This is what, what they will present to you. Uh, so I think that's another way in which the Venn diagram works.
0: That That's fantastic. And I, I know you mentioned that uh, example of the haunted deck. Robert Strong said, yes, please, more examples. I believe there is an example of uh, a money trick in Argentina that was particularly effective.
1: Well, that's an example of preparing more than your audience can imagine you ever would. Uh, I was actually in Blair House, which is the house across from the White House where uh, guests High-level guests will stay. And it was then the president of Argentina, uh, who was then Carlos Menem, and he was there uh, waiting to go see the president. And for whatever reason, I was there along with some other officials who were meeting him. I don't recall why we were meeting him. Nothing particularly secret or nefarious. We were just senior officials of the U.S. government. We were there. And someone said to him, you know, this fellow over here is a magician. And he said, oh, I love magic. Uh, Can you show me something? So I said, well, do you have a dollar bill in your pocket from change you've gotten somewhere? He did. And uh, I did what probably half of the audience can do. I folded up the dollar bill. I had some story about how this was inflation in reverse. Made it smaller. And when I opened it up, it was a $100 bill. He really liked the trick. It was a big hit. And uh, you all know the trick. And about a week later, we got a cable from our embassy in Buenos Aires saying, the president would like to offer Mr. McLaughlin the finance ministry. (laughs) Now, it was a joke, of course. I mean, it was, he had said it. It wasn't a real offer, of course. But it, apparently this had stayed with him enough that in some interchange with an American diplomat, he had said, let's offer the finance ministry to that guy in Washington. <laughs> Argentina was in some financial trouble at the moment, at that particular time. But even though that yeah. was object- you know, my point is, my point of that is I, I had to be as you all know, you know people in this audience know, people ask you to do a trick anytime. And the the worst thing you can say as a magician is, I'm not prepared. So right. you know, always have the rubber bands on your arm, always have <laughs> stuff in your pocket. <laughs> Be prepared to go.
0: But I do but, love that that in that instance that magic trick was so memorable that in a way it might have been it might have had a positive effect on that meeting, on our relationship with Argentina. So it's a small trick with a huge impact.
1: Well, I I used magic at the CIA for two reasons. I didn't mix it a lot with my work. Um but um it was an icebreaker when I had to meet particularly foreign intelligence services, where often the relationship is very formal. Uh, but if you introduce, you know, a deck of cards or something else, it puts everyone on it. Magic is the great leveler. it, it Everyone understands it in the same way. And also, um, you were asking about the Venn diagram again. Uh, I would sometimes perform magic for some of our officers who were going to be Um, operating in hostile environments overseas where they would be under heavy surveillance. And I'm not trying to teach them magic tricks, but I'm trying to, again, think like a magician, be one ahead, um, direct attention. I mean, uh, uh, avoiding surveillance is a bit like misdirection on a larger stage. And that's uh, that's an exaggeration. You you can get intelligence officers into trouble by telling them, operate like a magician. But think like a magician, is a good thing. So, but you don't want them doing sleight of hand on the job.
0: Right. <laughs> but it makes sense because sometimes the best misdirection is just it's not necessarily making sure they're not paying attention to where you are. Making sure they're paying attention to somewhere completely away from where you are,
1: or hiding in plain in plain sight. And, you know, magicians have been uh, helpful. I I can't give many details on this, but uh, they they have been consulted by CIA on uh, things that won't surprise you, things like concealment devices and so forth, trying to move someone from one place to another. Who does that better than a magician without being detected?
0: And also, thank God you were there, too, because in terms of if the CIA needs to talk to somebody and ask them who the magicians they should be reaching out to, you're uh a Perfect resource.
1: Yes, I am.
0: (laughs) Uh Joel Perry actually wrote in and said, John, can you please tell the Russian color changing deck story? I love that one.
1: Oh, I don't know that one. (laughs) Which one is that? (laughs) Color changing deck story. Hmm.
0: It seems Joel is one ahead of you. I don't know. I don't know how you managed to do that.
1: Um I did I did do card tricks with the Russian intelligence service that was maybe that's what he's heard it, it, I don't know how that started but uh for some reason I did and the uh, Russians uh, whom uh, can be very competitive and and they uh, they said oh we have we have magicians too and the next time they came to Washington and we you know of course we're rival services and so forth but you, nonetheless you still talk to everyone that you, who will talk to you and when they would Come to Washington on at least a number of occasions. They would bring someone that they claimed was a pretty good magician, and we'd have some a, a dueling card tricks at dinner. That kind of thing. Oh, uh,
0: I, said, yes, I, that's the one. <laughs> I'm
1: sorry, I don't remember precisely that story, but uh, it, it it may be something I just don't remember.
0: No, that's that's amazing. Um, and then Ken Weber uh, said, Sean Connery or Daniel Craig. <laughs>
1: The classic, of course, the classic <laughs> Sean Connery oh, the
0: third party he didn't mention. Oh
1: yeah, yeah. Well, you know the the, uh, the, the uh, I, I, I'm I'm glad that people at least associate um, intelligence with Sean Connery and Daniel Craig. There is the other extreme of um, uh, who was it. Uh, there were a couple of buffoons who were also supposed. Oh, to big be.
0: Panther. <laughs> yeah,
1: yeah. Um, the guy with the uh, phone and the, the sh- phone in his shoe and so forth. I forget Get who. Smart. It was. <laughs> Get smart. smart. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But uh, and also, there's Jack Ryan. Of
0: Can rubber say correct? <laughs>
1: Okay, I, think I, never wanted, I never want to be uh, in, in the wrong place with Ken Weber.
0: That's right. Which, by the way, if you're watching, Ken Weber came out with Maximum Entertainment 2 Revenge of the Jew. I don't know if that's the subtitle he's using, um, but the book is Maximum Entertainment 2.0. Um, also, uh, we mentioned it's a, great that
1: book. it's a great book.
0: It's fantastic. And I'm not just saying that because I'm in it, uh, <laughs> I am biased. Um, but we mentioned you being a magician. We mentioned you being obviously part of the CIA and involved in intelligence. Um, but the third thing that you do, uh, is you are a professor. Um, and I heard that you are part of something called the grand union of magical professors, also known as Gump. Can you tell us a little bit about what <laughs> Gump is?
1: Well, <laughs> a couple of my friends, uh, one is, um, uh, Dale Sawick is a professor at, uh, a college in California. And, uh, uh gentleman in this photo uh, in the middle, uh, the in the front, has just, just passed away uh, not long ago. Rick Hunt, at the age of 95, I believe he was a professor at Harvard of uh, uh, German history. Fellow on, uh, he's not in this photo, but another member of this group is uh, Elliot Cohen, who is the dean of the school I am in, and Elliot is a magician. And... Uh, I guess that's it. Dale, Elliot, myself, and uh, Rick. Yeah, and so we formed a little group, and I made up some cards too for us, the Gump uh, <laughs> Association. Uh, those those cards and a hundred dollar bill will get you a cup of coffee.
0: Well, let's let's uh, let's have a, a reunion of sorts of the Gumps. We have another member. Uh, he's in that picture. Make some noise. Get excited. He uh, is is one of the co owners of the Chavez School of Magic. Coming to you from California. It's Dale Salak, everybody. How are
2: Dale? Oh, well. <laughs> hey, Dale. How are you? Hi, John. You can't keep the gumps apart. No.
1: <laughs> this is like that old, that old show, This Is Your Life.
2: That's right. <laughs>
1: Dale and I have closed more convention bars than just about anyone else uh, yeah. in the convention, I think.
2: Or been kicked out of a few.
1: We've been kicked out of a few. It, it gets to the <laughs> point of saying uh, the lights go out and uh, the waitress is doesn't even say last call, they just throw us out.
2: I remember one time John and I were enjoying a good chat and enjoying a drink. And she said, it's time to close. And she took our drinks and poured them into plastic glasses because she wanted to keep the glasses. And we went out <laughs> on the patio with our plastic cups. <laughs> pathetic. It was but
0: also met at a convention, right? I believe John, uh, w- w- at the time, was either acting director or acting uh, deputy director. Uh, and so you had a security detail, right? Uh, so you, you came in very, yeah,
1: I, I was, I was deputy director at the time and yes, I traveled with uh, security agents and, uh, they would usually arrive first and do what they call an advance, meaning they had to check everything and assure that, uh, you know, there was nothing of danger there or whatever. And, uh, I think Dale noticed them and introduced himself. And then they in turn said, there's this other guy who's really interested in you and we, we got to know each other that way, courtesy of the security agents.
2: That was in 2004 when we first met in San Diego. Mel Kintz introduced us, in fact, and I oh, so? uh, oh, yeah. was, was very also. grateful to Mel for that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Well, that was a great refuge for me in those days. I I, was, I went to magic conventions a uh, good part of the time I was in CIA, and I managed to remain anonymous most of the time. But starting in 2000, or 1999, when I de- acquired this deputy, depu- deputy director job, uh, I had these, uh, you know, I had the security agents with me. So I was, I, was, I, was too, I was very conspicuous from that time on. Uh, but I went to conventions all through those years. And uh, there's a, a little fair, and I, they would go with me. There's a little fair that I've performed at for 35 years in Loudoun County and even when I was at the CIA, I would continue to perform there, except in the year of 9-11. Because uh, the, the, the fair is in October. 9-11 had happened in September 11, as you know. And it didn't feel appropriate for me to be doing anything other than being on the job at that time. But otherwise, when I would perform there, the security agents would be there inconspicuously around. Yeah, there we are. Hmm uh inconspicuously in the crowd and uh that was fun so and between, that's, that, that's between I, that's, I, I would do five shows in a row and between the shows i'd go to my armored car and take calls from <laughs> senior officials about very serious matters having nothing to do with card tricks
0: I hope you were resetting your show as it was going on because I love that image of you dealing with very intense international affairs while resetting the linking rings and making sure the loads are in the right pockets. <laughs> Hold on one second. I dropped the lemon.
1: No, uh, you, you can make a big mistake. As you know, as you know, if, you know, if you don't check every pocket and every piece of apparatus and everything on your tables before you begin, Dale is a fanatic about that. Dale, Dale is the, not only the gentleman of magic but his table. I haven't seen his table up close before an act, but I know it's specially designed and it is everything is precisely in place as is everything about his act. And uh, I'm sure you check and double check everything,
2: Dale. I do, and I tell the stage hand when he's setting the table, <clears throat> carry it
0: gently because if you bump it, there goes the act. <laughs> exactly. And Dale, when we were talking a little bit earlier, you mentioned that your friendship with John is the ideal friendship. Can you explain uh, what makes it so ideal?
2: Yeah, I've said this to John on numerous occasions that um, he wants to learn more about magic and I want to learn more about politics and government. So it's the ideal friendship. John is a white walking encyclopedia, as you can imagine. His experiences are global. And he's been a very, a very valued advisor over the years, ever since we first met.
1: Well, and there's nothing Dale doesn't know about magic.
2: Uh-huh. And no one
1: and no one he doesn't know.
2: <laughs> Hardly. If you go
1: to a convention with Dale, uh, it's like you're meeting one giant of magic after another. And uh, he doesn't sleep.
2: No, that's true. <laughs> But I know someone else is a night owl.
1: Yeah, but you're 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 still going long after I've collapsed, and, and one of
0: that, surrounded by plastic he'll,
1: cups. He'll call you at seven o'clock in the morning and say, "I have a table for us in the restaurant," and That's he's true. And he's been up all night.
0: Uh, <laughs> and was there ever a, a point where uh, the, the situation was re- reversed, where? Dale was asking uh, you for magic, or or you were asking Dale for politics. Is is, is it? Uh, has there ever been a situation like that?
1: I don't think so, but I I do know I I have. Um, uh, no, I, I think we just share. I I certainly have shared some thoughts about magic with Dale, but I I usually it's I'm more on the receiving end than on the giving end.
0: And Dale, I have a question from Jason Saran has said, John, did you have to approve Dale's trip to North Korea? I know you uh, performed in North Korea. Did, was John able to give you advice about performing there?
2: Well, um, the first trip was in 2009 and um, John and I were having dinner near the Los Angeles airport. I was visiting my parents in San Diego. I drove up to LA, uh, no distance is too great for a friend. And during the dinner, I just um, shared with John that I'd been invited and was going. Uh, At the time, I was a little hesitant to tell John. And I told John this story because I was afraid he'd say, don't go. (laughs) But he didn't. He was very encouraging. And he said, no, you'll be treated well. After all, you're an invited guest. And that's been my history ever since 2009. I've been treated very well. Uh, They know I'm coming with no hidden agenda that I'm interested in the cultural life, the personal life of people, and interested in setting up exchanges between their magicians and ours. They have quite a vibrant magic society in North Korea.
1: Yeah, just in general, I I think uh, it's always good to talk to everyone. You know, talking to someone is not a reward for something. Mm -hmm. I mean, you are learning something when you do it. Um, Churchill's famous remark, many famous remarks by Churchill but one of them was uh, of course uh, jaw jaw is better than war war
0: absolutely and also um so there's uh there's a picture i found uh, this is john in his office and i noticed a detail um mm-hmm. in the back there it is there's you on the cover of genie magazine oh. i've been searching <laughs> for a very long time trying to find this this uh, edition of genie in which you were on the cover uh I have not been able to find it. Uh, how did that end up on your wall?
1: That is an example of uh, CIA forgery. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, but I can tell you one thing that's not a forgery is you were definitely on the cover of The Linking Ring, uh, yeah. the KPM's, uh fantastic magazine. And that story was written by Dale. Uh, and, and so Dale, I guess, uh, can you walk us a little bit through uh, how you ended up writing the story? And were there, was there anything Uh, particularly surprising that you found out that you were uh, excited to learn when you were writing the article?
2: Well, the timing seemed right. Um, As John mentioned earlier, he'd been kind of an anonymous for many years at the magic convention. But uh, ten years had passed and I just thought that um, John deserved and warranted and magicians would be interested to know more about John's life. After all, he's had such a, a prominent place to play in the magical world for so many years and is passionate about the art. So the timing just seemed right and John was very um, agreeable to it. He sent me the photos which I used and after I'd written the article, I sent it to John and he made a few suggestions and then we, Sammy uh, Smith was good enough to run it in Linking Ring. Uh, I think um, what I've learned from that experience and others in talking with John is um, what a, What a rich life he has lived. Uh, The one line that jumped out at me, which I can relate to personally, is that his mother told him when he was very young, John, you can do anything you want to do. And I think he's done that, obviously. But if if there's one takeaway from the years I've known John, it's that, that he had the full support of his mother and he's gone on and obviously done great things for our country.
0: Oh, that's awesome. Dale, thank you so much for joining Um, Chavez Magic Studio. It's still being built, but make sure you bookmark that page so that when it is up, uh, you can be the first one to see it. Uh, Dale, thank you so much for joining. We really, really appreciate it. Stay safe and stay well. My pleasure, thank you. See you soon,
1: John. Great to see you, Dale. Thanks for coming.
0: Uh, And one of the things that we have alluded to is uh, creating business magic, uh, your book uh, with David Morey and and you, Uh, there's a third author, Eugene Berger, and I wonder if you can tell me how you got involved with Eugene, and um, uh, and I believe he was your, your mentor as well.
1: Yes, I first met Eugene at an IBM convention, and it was one of those times when, you know how the convention sometimes has uh, the president, has a party at some point. I, I w- I've never been very um, conspicuous in magic, and I, I don't consider myself a major magic figure at all. I just, I'm an amateur passion. Uh, the way I like to describe myself is I'm, I'm a magic enthusiast. I'm passionate about it and I work at it. But for some reason, I got invited to this. Uh, a friend of mine said, why don't you come up and join? So I went up and I ended up standing next to Eugene. And we had this wonderful conversation. And uh, I just related to Eugene immediately. He always tells a funny story, at least I think it's a funny story. <laughs> he he asked me, Eugene was very curious. And you know, he had a kind of um, Curiosity, particularly about um, the bizarre and about conspiracy theories and things. And Eugene said to me, are there there any any aliens at Area 51? (laughs) And he asked me quite seriously. And I said, not anymore. (laughs) Now... He didn't, I mean, I was just making that up. It was a joke. And, and out there, folks, that was a joke. That's right. <laughs> that was a joke. And uh, but Eugene always looked back to that remark as uh, layers of meaning in it, you know. And it was just a joke, really. Anyway, uh, we established a relationship and I would see him periodically, and uh, you know, we would have dinner or lunch or whatever, and uh Eugene was a genius, really. And what I admired most, uh, Eugene used to say magic is about the experience of life, which made me think a lot about why do we do magic? I mean, we do magic because it it represents metaphorically um, experiences that people have. Loss, restoration, transformation. Uh, It represents hopes they have. It also represents um, the idea that mystery is still there in life. The the three people who just received the Nobel Prize for their work on black holes. I heard an interview with uh, the woman who's an American. The other two are from somewhere overseas in, in Europe, I believe. And the woman said something like, what's more interesting than studying black holes that defy all of the laws of physics that we understand? Well, that made me feel good because I've tried to understand black holes and I can't. I can't get the concept in my head. They, they cause matter to disappear. Right. <laughs> yeah. Where does it go?
0: So <laughs> That's a very you know, magician way of thinking about it. We're like if something vanishes, it can't just, we, we know it's still at the base of the box.
1: Yeah, it's in your pocket. It's gone south, whatever. black pocket. But magic reminds you of the, the, the mystery that is still there in life. One of Eugene's great scripts, and it's in that book uh, that uh, Larry Haas prepared on Eugene called From Beyond, and he's working on volume two now. But one of Eugene's great scripts in there has to do with uh, extreme burn, a trick that many people here will know. And the opening paragraph, and there are nine versions of the script. Eugene was a great scripter. He he scripted everything, even though it sounded extemporaneous. And all nine scripts are printed. And the ninth script, for the first time, he adds the first paragraph, which says something like, I haven't learned it yet, but I, I, I think I will. Something like, have you ever wondered where magic comes from? I think it comes from dreams. Now, when I read that, I thought, I just had a dream the other night when I dream a lot. And the other night, I had one of these dreams where whatever was going on could not conceivably happen. And I thought, what an insight that is. We don't understand dreams, really. There's a lot of mystery in life. Magic brings all of that to you. So that was one of the things I I learned from Eugene. Eugene also had exquisite taste in magic. That is, he didn't try to learn everything. He tried to learn and perfect the things that, in his taste, in his his mind, would be uh, good magic. He spent a lot of time, was quite devoted to Al Baker's work. And somewhere behind me there, I have that big, thick Al Baker book that uh, Todd Carr put out. Uh, So I just, I just think Eugene was someone who elevated the art uh, in a way that uh, some people do, but very few people to the extent that that Eugene did. And he was also, of course, a mentor and partner to Jeff McBride, whom I, uh, I I've studied with. And uh, Jeff's Magic and Mystery School in Las Vegas is a great institution for uh, elevating the art. I think.
0: Yeah, and I I think Eugene didn't just have good taste in uh, magic; he has a good taste in people. Uh, In a previous episode, uh, Suzanne talked about being introduced to uh, the person that ran the restaurant that she, she, I believe, is still working at. Um, And also, I believe Eugene actually introduced you to David Morey, but you don't have to take my word for it because he's here right now. He is the CEO of DMG Global and Vice Chairman of Core Strategy Group. He's advised 5 Noble Peace prize winners. He has uh, advised global presidential campaigns, including Bill Clinton and Barack Obama. He's also one of the co-authors of Creating Business Magic. Make some noise, get excited, David Morey, everybody.
1: There he is, all
0: the way from his river house. <laughs> you, know, you know, these CIA guys hate surprises, Harrison. That's right. You know, There's a part of me that was nervous about any surprise. I almost didn't do any surprise guests because I figured they wouldn't be surprises. Well, David
1: is
3: also—he <laughs> knew this was coming.
1: <laughs> David is also the founder of uh, what we call Washington Magic, which uh, he could explain to you. But we—I'm—I'm I'm a member of that group of performers. We perform at the Arts Club of Washington in normal times when there's no virus, about once a month. It's a wonderful uh, performing venue for us here in Washington.
0: And what is the what is the audience of Washington Magic? Is it a lot of people involved in the political arena? Is it civilians? Uh, Is it a mix?
1: I'll let David tell
0: you. Yeah, (laughs) I I think John, it's great to be with you.
3: I'm listening to all this. I love. I love. I don't think we can surprise John McLaughlin, so we're just going (laughs) to assume he was one ahead. Uh, Washington Magic, uh, and then I have a Eugene story about how we were introduced. Washington Magic, as you would imagine, Harrison, it's the Arts Club of Washington, so it's this it's James Monroe's former home. It's a mansion. We think of it as the Magic Castle of the East. You know, it's this 16 you know, year old mansion with all kinds of rooms. And I'll tell you the Eugene story, but I always feel like I was a Russian recruiter for John because John, you know, we started doing this and, I, and Jeff McBride, our mutual teacher said, David, you gotta, you go around the world, you give speeches, but you need a monthly gig to work on your magic, which is a smart idea. So of course we invited John and John kept coming. And, I kept saying, John, you know, do you want to do some close-up? I was unintentionally the, the Russian recruiter, right? <laughs> but, yeah, can I do some close-up? And then, you know, about five shows later, we got John up on the stage. And now we can't get rid of John because he's so good.
1: <laughs> no, it's a, it's a great venue. Uh, in Washington, you know, everyone is stressed out all the time, of course. So <laughs> we advertise it as a great date night. And it's uh, for 75 bucks. you get open bar, dinner, and a show. In a mansion, uh, in a yeah, colonial mansion, basically. And uh, the audience is, uh, these are people uh, really, uh, you know, I think Jeff says there are thinking audiences and drinking audiences. And I always describe our audiences as a thinking audience that drinks a little. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and they're very engaged. Uh, it's a place where you can be working on a piece. I'm working on Cards to Pocket right now, for example. And uh, I could go there and say, when I think it's about ready, I could say, I haven't done this before, ladies and gentlemen. You are my premier audience. Come along with me. We'll see if, uh, if this works as I hope it will. And they'll understand and sort of encourage you. Uh, it's, it, and also, of course, they, they appreciate it when you do good magic, but uh, it, it's a good audience.
3: It's a little bit, Harrison, like catch a rising star for magic. You know, <laughs> we, we, bring in, we bring in some new pieces But the other thing is that, you know, and we've been doing Zoom shows like everyone else, you know, which have gotten bigger, go figure. You know, we we figured out how to do that early. So uh, on the website there, I think you can see the last show and we get thousands and thousands of people now globally. But when we did them live and we'll do them again soon, people need more magic right now, especially in Washington, right? (laughs) You feel that, John, in the audience. They just, they have this appreciation and hunger that i think uh, has been described by what you talked about eugene uh, and what drove eugene you know he was he was so about magic being about bigger dreams you know about something much bigger than the smaller element of the trick magic he said quoting tenkai is a way and so that's what we try and do at washington magic
0: and you mentioned you would go a little bit into the eugene burger story i'd love to hear yeah. that, you know. how, uh,
3: how did we meet actually i i want to be accurate john Dr. Lou Neprin, who was Cardini's doctor.
1: <laughs> right, 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 right. I mean,
3: can't, you know, we all have these mentors and these people. Some of them are, are not with us right now, uh, but they're all in our hearts because uh, there's something about magic where there's an apprenticeship and a, a kind of mentoring system, which is I think we all understand. And Dr. Lou was one of these guys, and he said, you need to meet my friend John McLaughlin many years ago. And he's going to be at the same convention you are. Just go up and say you're David Mori. And so I went up and I thought we should have some, you know, the fish are swimming along the waters or, you know, some kind of code. But I said, are you John? And he said, yes. Are you David? I guess that was as close as we get. But the funny story, Harrison, is Eugene Berger, who is with us all in spirit now and in the book, he was always famous, and I don't think I've told you this, John, he was always famous for organizing the dinner party. If it, it might've been a real dinner party or it might've been a metaphorical dinner party. And he and I separately, I can tell you that story if we have time, had come to the idea of creating business magic from different experiences. So we're gonna co-write this. And Eugene sits down with that great voice and has this big conversation with David. I think we should bring John McLaughlin in because it would be really sexy to have the former director of the CIA as our co-author. What do you think? I said, I'm for sexy. Let's do that. That's how John joined our dinner party. And he's been with us ever since. And it's been a, it's a dinner party that keeps going. Right, John?
1: Yeah. I'm glad you mentioned uh, Dr. Lou Neperent. I'm sure some people in the audience remember him. He was a very kind, gentle physician. It was Cardini's doctor. And, um, You know, I would see him at conventions, and he would always, if you, he was, another person like him that I um, admired was Barry Richardson, the late Barry Richardson. I would see Barry Richardson at a convention. We would have dinner. I I would uh, work on something in one of Barry's books. And, uh, David, the thing I did at our last uh, virtual show was right out of Barry's books. It's a trick that he called the impossible knot. Yeah, I, I call it not possible. I call it uh, not possible, but uh, it was. It's a hard trick to do, and uh, it's a rope trick, and it requires. I kept having trouble with the rope. Uh, the there's a device you use that kept snagging on the rope, and I explained this to Barry, and he said, "Wait a minute, I'll be right back." And he went up to his room and he brought me a piece of the rope that he uses, and uh, and that's the rope I use to this day for that particular trick. You know, there's something in the magic world that doesn't exist in other worlds. Magicians are fundamentally nice to each other. I, I know there are some, you know, feuds that go on and strange things happen. But fundamentally, magicians are nice people. And, and they help each other. And what a, what a community. Uh, you know, when I was working in my other job, it was always a refuge for me. And to this day, I advise students I teach who are going off into, you know, pension-filled jobs in the State Department or Treasury Department or the Congress or wherever. I say, get a hobby. (laughs) Get a hobby. Something that you're passionate about because the work you're going into is at some level kind of narcotic. Uh, You'll mainstream on the work. And if you're not careful, that's all you will do. So you need something. Magic always, I mean, I had long hours and in my old job, you didn't leave till you were done, but uh, you, it was always a pool. It was always, you know, it was always something you were reaching out for and everyone needs that, they can magic. I think
3: John Harrison, like me, magic is a hobby going way, way out of control. <laughs> and <laughs> and uh, what people don't maybe know about John yeah, I'm a big fan of cross fertilizing. Harrison, you come from comedy; you cross fertilize this into magic, and you know there are people on this uh, on this call, in this workshop, and this uh, this broadcast, if you will, that I, I know are cross fertilizers. John is a triple cross fertilized master. You know, we know he was acting director of the CIA. He also is now a award-winning teacher at Johns Hopkins. So that means the students know a good teacher when they see him in this case. And what's fun about Washington Magic is, um, and I know you're working with Jeff and you keep getting, I guess with COVID-19, we're all getting better at magic because we're working on it. You know, the people that are staying into it. Um, John gets better every day. I mean, he's such a master magician these days. We we love it. I mean, it's just, he, he really keeps- no, please, Stop. So now he's on his third act. It's a triple
1: master. So don't listen in. He's a great magician. You know, but David makes a good point, And many people are making this point these days. But uh, this, this audience may even have already decided this for themselves. One advantage of this time is that you can work on your magic. I'm, I'm as busy as I normally would be. In fact, I said to my wife today, uh, I've been on this medium for like 10 hours today and because uh, you can be but still uh when you get up to take a break you can, you know i walk across the hall there's a mirrored bathroom there and i'm working on a card trick or something this is a time when you can sharpen your magic and because when when this is over people are going to be hungry for live entertainment i think
0: i agree yeah, and for those who are watching, we are nearing the end of this broadcast, so if you have any questions for, uh, for, for John, please put them in the comments, uh, if you're on Facebook or YouTube, and we'll try to get to those as well. Uh, one of the things that I noticed in the book um, is you talk about red teams um, that uh, you uh, the CIA uses them. Um, these are teams who go in and try to figure out what's wrong or, or what can be improved about something. Um, if you had a, a magic red team, what do you think uh, they might suggest? And I'll start with you, David, and then go to you, John.
3: You mean in terms of the art of magic right now? Yeah. Well, I think that um, the red team would recognize the resilience of magic. Uh, You'll notice how smoothly people like you have moved to this new medium. uh, And that resilience is a very powerful world in the world of intelligence. I think magicians are born resilient. You know, we, we are, creative problem solvers beyond par excellence here. So I, I think that's a, a really great thing. But I think, as John said, we're facing a renaissance coming up, I believe, in magic because we're going to have hungrier audiences and better magicians and maybe even more thoughtful magicians in honor of Eugene. Eugene had that great ability to take magic beyond the trick to the Tenkai quote, magic is a way. Magic is a way of thinking, and Copperfield in the – forward to the book, talks about that. Magic is about imagination and bigger forms of imagination. So I'm, my red team would be, don't give up, don't get down, don't get depressed. We got a long way to go, but we are coming back, and we're also coming back in a hybrid form. This is going to be part of our lives. We're all going to keep our TV studios, even when we go live to, to live performances.
1: And, and well, honestly, the, way we teaming, the way we use red teaming, Harrison, was right after 9-11. We created a red team of our most eccentric and, and inventive and uh, out-of-the-box analysts, and we asked them to imagine what terrorists would do next. What would the targets be? What did we have to protect? What did we have to block? What did we have to stunt? And they were very uh, – inst- and, and, so, and basically were saying, become become the terrorist in your mind. Uh, Matt, get in their milieu, their social milieu, political milieu, and so forth. Uh, In magic, if you put together a red team these days, I think magicians do this, particularly the most successful magicians. Um, In a a way, Jeff's Magic and Mystery School is kind of a red team for magic. Another way to think about it is, I don't know David Copperfield, don't. I've met him once, as many of you have, but from what I understand, it, it's kind of a red team working with him in other words it's a group of people chris Kenner and others I think you've interviewed yep. who, who are basically brainstorming and getting out of the box and 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 breaking through the conventional ways of thinking about things in order to take magic to another level how else to explain it uh, again it's not uh, it's not method before effect it's effect before method that I think it's their I'm assuming, is their approach. Otherwise, how could they come up with these things? The, the spaceship over the audience. The uh, it, I've heard interviews with David in which he talks about the, um, the animatronic uh, puppet that he has in the show. And I saw the show when he was starting, and I saw the show, well, you know, sort of just before the pandemic. And he had changed it. By working on it and working on it and working on it, and he was free to admit it at the beginning didn't quite work, but by the time I saw it the last time, it was a good, it was a very good uh, flow of an effect. And
0: uh, you know, I
1: think that's what red teaming does. We all red team in magic. If you, in a way, you know, a convention is a red team. It's a bunch of people getting together and trying to think how to do this better.
3: Yeah. And Harrison, you, you know, we all need our kitchen cabinet of people that tell us the truth in magic. You have written a lot and thought about don't start with technique as many magicians do start with the end in mind in the book, Copperfield, you know, literally flew over the great wall of China 20 some years ago, true story and looked down and said, I'm going to go through TV within the next two years. Magicians are awfully good at finding that imaginary destination. And then, they'll figure out a way to get there because they're problem solvers.
0: And and David, I know the book speaks a lot about what business people in particular can learn from magicians. Um, what what have you learned in particular from John, uh, either about magic or about life?
3: Well, John and I, you know, I, I, I can admit this because no one else is listening. John and I believe we're faking it when it comes to magic. We're, we're like interlopers, you know, like we're not really magicians, even though I objectively have to say we both are pretty darn good magicians, but we don't really think that deep down. So John and I are always kind of confessing, oh yeah, what about, a, did you forget that? Or did you, do that? we always feel like we've broken into the house of magic that Eugene talked about and we're, we're sort of borrowing the props. But I've learned from John really, um, preparation, power of thinking. John is as methodical about his magic as I, I'm sure he was in the intelligence world And he is a teaching. So it's about preparation and really being uh, thoughtfully methodical. Uh, And, and, you know, the creativity comes but that thoughtful, uh, methodical approach that Dale Salawak's table, I'm sure, represents. God knows what's in there and how well it's orchestrated. You know, that's what magicians have going for us, I think.
1: There's a new book about um, a um, James Baker who was uh – prominent figure in Washington, chief of staff in the White House, Secretary of State, uh, close to H.W. Bush, and uh, Ronald Reagan, and so forth. And it's called the man who ran Washington. This, this, I'm reading it. now. The, this, the secret of his success was preparation. Prepare for everything. You, you're testifying in Congress, you're doing a TV interview, you're doing a magic show, careful preparation. Uh, Picasso said, uh, perfection is in the details, but detail is no perfection. So, and what I've learned from people like Eugene and uh, Jeff McBride and, and working with David is that sometimes the tiniest little change, the tiniest little line I mean, you guys know this, Harrison, you're a professional. You know this instinctively, but, and particularly, I think, with comedians. I'm sure you would agree. A well-told joke looks like it's just coming off the top of your head, but every word has to be in the right order, right?
0: I've, I've spoken about that. It, when sometimes a joke, changing the word the to "an." Uh, I have a joke where I mentioned a planet, and every night I would go up and try a different planet to see which is the funniest planet. Uh, turns out in that joke, it's Jupiter. Uh, but yeah, <laughs> comedy is sometimes that fine. Uh, and I also love, um, in terms of preparation, I always say you have to earn all your magic tricks. And by earning it, it means doing it so many times that you've screwed it up every possible way so that when you do screw it up, because you can never, you're never gonna be perfect. You will screw it up, no matter well, how- I,
1: I am linked to discovering uh, that the importance of videoing your magic. I, I heard about it for years and I said, yeah, right. Of course, yeah, sure. I finally started doing it. And I encourage everyone to do it. And it's so easy. You can do it with your phone these days. Stick your phone up on your desk and just do your trick. Uh, you see stuff that you say, I don't want to do that. Oh, I, 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 I see the steel, or I see the palm, or I'm flashing the uh, tenkai uh, palm, or whatever. Uh, and it, it's just invaluable. Or I didn't say that right or I look goofy when I say that, just look differently. <laughs> so it just, it's very valuable to video your stuff and look at it. David used to tell me that, and I took me years to figure it out that it actually works.
0: Uh, and, and David, as we're wrapping up, um, uh, uh, I could spend forever with you guys, but I know <laughs> both of your time is very valuable. Uh, is there any last thoughts that you had about John or about Magic that you'd like to share?
3: Well, I think um, you know John and I loved Eugene and we uh, embody, I think, Eugene's spirit because Eugene was at heart a teacher. He was teaching people and inspiring people and he used his magic to elevate that as a principle. You know, Eugene, my thought is Eugene said, life comes down to the dance between fear and courage. And we're all going through that dance right now. And so we need magicians to give us more courage and less fear and John is, you know, John's favorite quote is David Devon, you know, Was it all with kindness?
1: All done by kindness.
3: That is John's character on stage. It's called kindness. And I'm sure he exemplifies that as a teacher, as a magician. I'm sure he was the kindest acting director of the CIA ever. I don't know if that was helpful (laughs) or not. But I know he's a very kind performer, teacher, and magician. And that's what we need right now in that dance between fear and courage.
0: That's awesome, David. Thank you so much for joining. Uh, you can follow the show Washington Magic, which is still doing virtual shows online. You can get tickets for that. You can also go to playoffense.com. And of course the book is Creating Business Magic, How the Power of Magic Can Inspire, Innovate and Revolutionize Your Business. That is available from all your favorite booksellers. So make sure you pick up a copy. It is fantastic. David, thank you so much for joining. I really, really appreciate it. See you, David. Thank you guys. Uh, and John, uh, we have two more questions. Um, the first question uh, is is about truth. Uh, when you walk into the CIA building, um, there is a quote in the marble. that I think it's from the Bible, actually. And ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Do you think the relationship magicians have with truth is the same relationship that spies have with truth? Or is it different?
1: I think it's the same. Um, a good friend of mine introduces his show sometimes by saying... Uh, this is this is Eric Henning. Uh, Eric is building himself now as the Wizard of Washington. So he's, his character is very much a Washington character. And he says, I'm the most honest man in Washington. I'm going to tell you ahead of time, I'm going to fool you. <laughs> and so I think there is a relationship. I, I, you know People sometimes say magic is about lying. I don't think it is. Magic is about actually bringing forward a greater truth, clothed in deception, if we're doing this correctly. So I think I don't see a great difference there. And, um, and that, that is the animating principle at the CIA. Uh, you know, I'm not saying the CIA is perfect. Um, certainly the CIA has made mistakes. And uh, what I would tell you is when they do, they, they really go to school on it and try and figure out what happened here and try and fix it and correct it. Uh, and but for the most but 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 the place is animated by the idea that your job is to be as clinical and objective as you can about the world around you to deliver to senior policymakers the best approximation of reality that you can sometimes I think that that's a better description than truth truths a philosophical concept and we can argue endlessly about what what is truth but an an approximation of reality as it can be perceived and described. That's that's what the CIA tries to do. And I, I guess that isn't what magicians are doing, in, in the sense that we're creating illusions. But um, but Eric's point is is correct in, in the sense that we. Um, in fact, when I one one thing I used to do for people at the CIA it kind of touches this point you've just made. Uh, I would do. Uh, I've done various versions of the newspaper tear uh, for years. The Gene Anderson version, recently, the Alex Hecklau version, Alex, and and uh, the, the Robert Bax version, and so forth. But and I, I want to try the uh, the. Uh, there's, there's another one by uh, the, the the Scott magician that Richard Kaufman recommended to me. Anyway, I would do the newspaper tear. And I would tell them, I'm gonna tell you in advance what I'm gonna do. i am tear up this newspaper, I'll put it back together. And I had I used the same pattern that Gene Anderson recommended. It's great, a great pattern story for it. And when I was done, I would say, How many of you were mildly mystified by what you just saw? They all were. <laughs> all the hands went up. And the, the teachable moment is if. I could deceive you even though I told you in advance what I was going to do. Imagine how easy it is for a foreign adversary to deceive you when they're not telling you in advance. And so what I was trying to sensitize them to is to be alert to the possibility of deception. Because when intelligence fails, it's often because someone has deceived you. The Soviets have invaded Czechoslovakia in 1968, surprising you. The... uh, the mullahs have taken over in Iran in 1979. Uh, somewhat surprising, many people. Now, there are many times the CIA is not surprised. <laughs> and, and and you never hear about the successes because typically when when, when they're successful, nothing happens.
0: Right. You,
1: know, you shouldn't know about that. embassy is not blown up. Yeah. The airport is not attacked. You never hear about that. So... That's one reason why you don't hear about intelligence successes, because often when they occur, nothing has happened. And that's the whole point.
0: And similarly with magic, you, uh, the only time people often find out the method is when you screw up. But normally they shouldn't know at all what's going on behind the curtain.
1: Or, or when you say or when you foolishly give the actual name of the trick. Yes. <laughs> I, I learned this with students. You never do that because they're on they're on uh, Google instantly.
0: I always so, say when you write out your set list, you should be describing the trick by what it is, not by what it's
1: Yeah, so right for is. every effect I have, name and effect, I I, I have my own name for it. <laughs> uh, it. A name that's derived from the script rather than from the, the name under which it was sold.
0: That's awesome. And and last but certainly not least, is the question I end every interview with, which is there's a lot of young performers, uh, young magicians who are watching. If you had one piece of advice for for them, what what would it be?
1: Yeah, that's uh, easy, really, and it comes from experience. Respect your magic and love your magic, and understand that you are giving people an experience that they'll remember. If you are, if you if you work at your magic and love your magic, they will remember. Your magic, what you show them, what you do for them for the rest of their lives as a happy moment. I know this because I performed for 35 years at this little country fair in Loudoun County. It's actually a big country fair, it's uh, you know, hundreds of people come and sit on bales of hay while I'm performing. And people who came as kids are now bringing their kids and they remember. When I was a kid, you did, they remember that as a happy memory. So what a gift you can give to people, I, I'm saying to people just starting in magic, what a gift you can give them. If you love your magic, respect your magic and do good magic.
0: That's an incredible note to end on. John McLaughlin, uh, thank you so much, so, so much for joining.
1: Thank you, uh, Harrison.
0: I think the quote that we opened up with, uh, I think it's obvious uh, that that you fit all the bill. Uh, You are a man of magic, warmth, wit, wisdom, and decency. Uh, John, thank you so much for joining. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, And uh, you can catch both of us in Swing State Magic. Um, You can find that uh, on my uh, Facebook. Uh, There's information about that. Uh, John, thank you so much. We really, really appreciate it. And uh, stay safe and stay well.
1: Thank you, Harrison. And thank you all for, uh, for coming in.
0: John McLaughlin, everybody, Uh, keep keep it going. I know I'm clapping internally, but you could be clapping yourself. What an incredible interview. What an incredible person, incredible magician, teacher, writer, uh, all the things. Uh, Thank you so much. And thank you to our special guests as well, David Morey and Dale Salwak. You can follow uh, David, WashingtonMagic.com, PlayOffense.com, also bookmark ChavezMagicStudio.com. That will be coming at you soon. Uh, thank you guys so much for watching. It's every Wednesday at 7 PM. If you're on the East coast, 4 PM, if you're on the West coast, you can watch old episodes and download this as a podcast at whobooksthat.com, And of course, uh, very importantly, magician.org slash join dash the dash IBM slash join. Make sure you support the international brotherhood of magicians. Uh, we, we appreciate their support so much. Uh, it's such a great organization. You absolutely should be a member. And if you are already a member, renew your membership, uh, my Twitter and Instagram is at Harrison Comedy. Next week, next Wednesday, the special guest is check It's going to be uh, a fascinating and incredible interview. So make sure you tune in next week at the same time for that. Thank you so much for watching all over the country. Uh, to Danny, to Steve, other Steve, Colin, Joel, Ken Weber. Thank you guys so much for tuning in. We really appreciate it. We can't do it without you. This has been Who Books That with Harrison Greenbaum presented by the International Brotherhood of Magicians. Thank you so much for watching. Have a great rest of your week. Who books that with Harrison Greenbaum? I'm singing the theme song. It's me singing. I'm singing the theme song. Definitely a theme song. Who books that?